I think that, you know, there are definitely weaknesses to the ways that we teach things in higher ed that kind of constrain how we use things. So we use things in kind of artificial context. So I think an even better strategy would be as if you were to learn something is to apply it to a project you really care about. And then in the case, if you can do the project or if you can do the thing you really care about, then that was the goal. So if your goal was to start a business or build a website or build a computer program and you just do that and then, you know, that would be the that would be the test. That's the real world test. One of the sneaky similarities with all the guests we have on the podcast, they have a ton of education, but that's not it. It's not the PhD. It's not the master's. It's that they continue learning throughout their life. And I think that's the key. You're either learning or dying. I'm really excited to tell you guys about our new partner, Brilliant.org, because their mission is to help everyone, whether a hobbyist or hardcore pro, continue learning, up-leveling themselves, and actually enjoying the process. Whether it's learning Python, taking on calculus, differential equations, you want to build neural nets, look into quantum computing, explore the physics of space. They have all that and more. It is the place to go to for science, math, and computer science and having fun in the process. One of my biggest goals with this podcast is to help inspire more people to be awesome and build the things they want to see in the world. Be that change. That's what Gandhi said, and I think you can do it, but a lot of times you need the skills to do it. And that is the entirety of Brilliant's mission, to give individuals the tricks of the trade to accomplish incredible things. To support the podcast, seriously, go to brilliant.org slash disruptors. Learn more about them. You can sign up for free. And the first 200 people that go to that link, you get 20% off the annual premium subscription. If you want to keep learning math, science, computer science, to increase your career skills, to help you build that website, to help you do whatever it is that you want to do in the world, brilliant.org is a brilliant way to do it, pun intended, from a great company with a great mission. And support us by supporting them. Brilliant.org slash disruptors for more details and to save 20%. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty big on health, longevity, and human optimization. That's why I'm pumped to tell you about our special 10% off offer from Onnit, the brainchild of UFC's Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus for elite performers. They're running a Willy Wonka style prize giveaway where everybody gets a golden ticket. Everybody wins on every order of Alpha Brain, a super nootropic stack that they sent me. I love it with my morning coffee and it comes with the potential to win an all expenses paid grand prize round trip for two to Onnit's hardcore headquarters in Austin, Texas, $1,000 store credit, $500 cash and more. Plus again, every bottle of Alpha Brain comes with a special bonus from the Onnit team. Just visit disruptors.fm slash alpha to save 10% off alpha brain or anything else from their awesome store. Again, disruptors.fm slash on it if you want hardcore subs to live a high performance life. Are you a founder looking to raise money but struggling to get traction? Investors see hundreds of decks a week. Trust me. If your pitch deck isn't hitting home, I've got good news. I've put together a free step-by-step guide with killer examples to create the perfect elevator pitch and pitch deck that VCs can't ignore. You can grab it for free at mattward.io slash elevator if you're in the market for venture dollars and want to make sure you get the meeting. And if you need more help with your delivery or VCs keep passing on your company, I offer one-on-one pitch deck critiques and coaching to help you close your round fast. Just visit mattward.io slash pitch for more details. And now let's get on with the episode. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Have you ever wanted to be superhuman to learn things faster? Well, that's what today's guest, Scott Young, was focused on. He's a blogger, traveler, author, and self-experimenter, an ultra-learner that took MIT's entire four-year CS programming course in a year. And he's the author of Ultra Learning, Mastering Hard Skills to Outsmart the Competition, Accelerate Your Career. He runs a podcast focused on that, career advice, philosophy, and more. Today, we discussed how to pull off that accelerated learning, how to know what you need to know, what you don't, and cut it into something manageable. The reason most MOOCs failed and why they didn't, how to redesign education for the 21st century, Scott's thoughts on productivity, purpose, and results, why Scott's not convinced about biohacking and brain augmentation, and where someone coming up today should focus their efforts for both impact and happiness on a long-term scale and stage. Without further ado, I give you guys Scott Young. 
We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So MIT in four years, that's a little bit of an overachiever deal. What's the deal? Yeah, so the this was a project that I did back in 2011. And the idea for the project was basically I'd graduated from university. I'd studied business in school. So I'd actually had a degree in, in doing business. And I kind of had a little bit of regret about what I chose to study because I think a lot of us, maybe even some of the people listening here, you have ideas about what, you know, going to college and what the school is going to do for you. And for me, my thought was, well, if I want to be an entrepreneur, if I want to have my own business, then the best thing to study would be business, right? And it turned out that most of business school classes are about how do you be a good middle manager in a large company. So you know, things like HR and things with organizational charts and and all that kind of stuff. And so after going through that program, I was a little bit disillusioned in sort of like, ah, I probably should have studied something else. And the other thing that I had been interested in studying before I, you know, when I was a freshman, when I was still choosing my major was computer science. And and now at this sort of juncture, which was (laughs) now eight years ago, I was thinking, well, I should have really studied that, you know, like you actually get to make things, you can actually do something useful. You know, there's always that joke about the, you know, the co-founder of like, oh, I've got this, you know, great idea. I just need someone to do all the work for me. (laughs) And then I can start this company and we'll split it 50-50. And I didn't want to be one of those guys. I felt like I liked making things. I liked programming. I liked doing stuff. I liked understanding how those kinds of things work. And so I was actually even at the time looking into, okay, what would it be like to go back to school? You know, how much time would it take? How much money would it take? I was actually running through the sort of cost benefit analysis. But I think, you know, as most people, if you've gone through one degree program, especially one where you kind of felt a little disillusioned at the end, you're not super keen on, great, let's extend this out another four years and take out student loans and live in a dorm room and, you know, not make any money and that kind of thing. And so around this time, I was looking online and I found that MIT actually uploads a lot of their classes online for free. This is still true if you go to MIT OpenCourseWare. They have hundreds of classes on things like computer science and engineering and all sorts of interesting topics. And I took one of these classes and I was, you know, blown away. I know, like, it's not surprising. I mean, they're one of the best schools in the world, but the quality of the instruction was top notch. They had really good materials. And I was digging around a little bit and I was like, you know, has anyone ever tried to do this instead? So instead of going back to school or, or trying to go to university to get the knowledge or get the things that you learn in a degree, has anyone ever tried to just use this material? And so this sort of resulted in this MIT challenge. And through some thinking about, you know, how could you do it more efficiently, not only just things like, well, normally, if you have an exam, it'll be on like December the 21st in this lecture hall, and you have to go at exactly that time. Whereas if you're self testing, I mean, you can just take the exam whenever you're ready or, or things like taking lecture videos. I know a lot of people who listen to podcasts, you're used to listening things at 1.5 times the speed. But if you're sitting in an actual classroom, you can't fast forward through the parts where the professor's shuffling through his papers. And, you know, you can't rewind the things that you didn't understand. And so using these sorts of little advantages, I figured I could simplify the degree instead of trying to do literally everything an MIT student would do. Just focus on pass the final exams, do the programming projects, basically learn the material, but in a sort of a skeleton kind of way, as opposed to trying to do every little detail and try to do it in 12 months as opposed to four years. And so that was the sort of big project that I did way back then. And, and that I think, you know, it's not the only idea that I would talk about for, for ultra learning in this book, but I think it sort of represents this idea of rethinking how do you acquire knowledge and skills given what's out there and what's available for people to use to learn. How do we do something like that in an effective way where it's not, you know how to go to the restaurant and order food, but when you're stuck in the bathroom and you're not quite sure how to ask for more toilet paper, you're screwed. So the kind of boxing ourselves into the little, the little, how do you understand and learn something without just having the facade of learning it, if that makes sense? Yeah, so I think one of the big things, and this is something that I feel a lot of people get wrong when it comes to teaching themselves subjects, is that they feel that the main source of learning comes from listening and reading and watching. So the example I'll give is that after I did this project, I had a lot of people who were sort of interested in in following on with it. And one of the things they noticed, which is true, is that a lot of the classes I took, they don't have the lectures recorded. So they only had the lectures recorded for maybe about third 
uh, 40% of the classes that I ended up taking. Now, this isn't a big problem if you're actually serious about doing it because most of the other classes have textbooks. So for those classes, you read the book instead of uh, watching lecture videos. But I think this mindset of, well, I'm going to read and listen and then, you know, maybe I've learned it, maybe I haven't, is probably the wrong way to think about it. And I think the reason that you can kind of ensure yourself that you actually have understood something deeply is by testing yourself, by actually using the material. So I think the thing that set my project apart from a lot of other uh, self-education projects was that I actually wanted to try to do the tests and I wanted to try to do the programming projects. And I mean, I'm not saying that doing tests and programming projects and doing these little assignments is everything that you could test yourself for learning, but it is certainly a good stopping point of just sort of saying, hey, do you actually understand this? Do you actually know this? Because if you can't answer questions, if you can't actually use the material, then you're certainly a lot worse off than if you were, you know, just, okay, I watched the lectures and so I I feel like I understand it, but I don't actually know if I do. And to be fair, traditional students are only doing the homework and the exams anyways. It's not like they're proving their knowledge in any other way besides having these little check boxes, so to speak. True, true. And I think that, you know, there are definitely weaknesses to the ways that we teach things in higher ed that kind of constrain how we use things. So we use things in kind of artificial context. So I think an even better strategy would be as if you were to learn something is to apply it to a project you really care about. And then in the case, if you can do the project, or if you can do the thing you really care about, then that was the goal. So if your goal was to start a business or build a website or build a computer program, then you just do that. And then, you know, that would be the that would be the test. That's the real world test. But at the same time, I think that even doing some kind of assignment, some kind of thing where you can get the answer wrong, I think that is very valuable. And I think a lot of people miss that when they're learning things, because I don't know what it is. There's something about the way we've been taught how learning works from a young age that we think it's mostly about sitting in the classroom and listening or, you know, doing the reading assignment. And we don't realize that for a lot of skills, the majority of the learning is actually taking place while doing the homework, while actually trying to solve hard problems and stuff. And so if you don't ever have that testing yourself step, it's very easy to convince yourself that you've learned something you actually haven't. Well, yeah, let me teach you how to shoot a free throw and we're going to do it from the book. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. It's, right? it, it's, it's crazy. So the education system, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast. It's effed in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I think what, you, what you've done kind of brings up a lot of those issues. How do we redesign the education system going forward? Because right now it's a factory for factory workers in a world that doesn't need factory workers or factories. Yeah. And you know what? I think there's been a lot of talk because I've been following this again. My project when I did this, oh, this was again, 2011. So this was like eight, nine years ago. This was even before MOOCs had come out. So there was this big hype about MOOCs, massively open online courses that oh, this is going to revolutionize colleges, colleges are going to quickly fall out of fashion. And then it now seems like that hype was maybe a little bit overblown. And I feel like a lot of people drew the wrong lesson from that, that a lot of people drew the lesson, oh, well, it's because you need the personalized instruction, or you need this and that. And I think the problem is just that we didn't really fully appreciate what a lot of these institutions are doing. And what a lot of these institutions are doing is first and foremost, credentialing. They're not really in the business of teaching. They're mostly in the business of can you go and sit through this four-year program and endure all of it. But the sort of paradox of that is that we also live in in a society right now where we do actually need complicated skills, that we live in a world that's getting increasingly complicated. There's more and more technology being required, more and more skills being required. So you kind of live in this ecosystem where on the one hand, the credentialing function of universities has sort of remained strong and it probably will continue to remain strong even if they're not the most effective at teaching. But we also need skills. We also need to be good at things in order to do our jobs well and have successful careers. And so the model that I like and the way that I like to think about it is not that we need to reform education, not because I think that that's not good, like I think we probably should make changes to it, but just because I think there's so much inertia and these institutions are so old and there's so many different competing interests that I think true reform is going to be very difficult at that level. But I think we need more options. I think we need more than just, okay, well, you either go to school or you don't learn it. And I think that there have been other options bubbling up. Like, you know, we know there's been things like code schools, Lambda school, these sorts of educational alternatives, although for the most part, they've been fairly limited in terms of focusing on engineering and, and programming. 
But in the same sense, ultra learning, this sort of idea of taking on projects on your own and aggressively learning hard skills, I think this is another option that I really want to advocate because I think waiting for the world to change, waiting for all the institutions to change, the schools to change, everything around you to be perfect so that you can acquire the skills you need to have a good career. I mean, I'm just not holding out too much hope that that's going to happen immediately, but you can, as an individual, take that initiative and learn whatever it is you want to learn to have the kind of career you want to have the kind of life that you want to have. Let's play devil's advocate. Did the MOOCs, sure. did the MOOCs fail because of the design of the MOOCs because it was all online or did they fail because people didn't have very much on the line? If you're putting nothing or 50 bucks or something into completing a course, it's not surprising that you have incredibly low course completion rates because people, yeah, people being people were evolved to be lazy. I, I think so for me, part of my feeling is that the low course completion rates have widely been cited as the failure of the MOOCs. But I think that's a little bit of a misunderstanding of it. Because again, like you're saying, if your goal was just to maximize the percentage, the percentage of people who complete the course, then obviously make more filters to people going in the course. I mean, this is the Harvard, MIT, this is the Ivy League model. If you restrict the people entering the classroom down to just a trickle of only, only the most best serious people, then yeah, of course you can get really diligent students out of it. But I think that was the opposite of what these things were supposed to be for. They were supposed to be massively open. They were supposed to be available to, you know, not only some rich kid who's studying in some prep school, but also someone who, you know, maybe doesn't have access to any of those other alternatives. And so for me, I think that that measurement, that metric is part of the problem is that instead of looking at, you know, the course percentage completion rate, I would be looking at, you know, what are the extra people that have gone through this and actually performed? And so for me, I feel like um, that's there are other things that I don't like about the MOOCs as much. One of the things I don't like is, and I think it's, again, related to this course completion rate measurement issue, is that a lot of people realize that, oh, the courses that we actually offer to our actual students are too hard. So we're going to water down the MOOC so it will appeal to a mass audience. And then as a result, you end up getting a thing that, well, it's not really an effective substitute for getting that education. And it just becomes a little bit more of an entertainment thing, which in which case, if it's just entertainment, you know, just watch some educational YouTube videos. I don't really see the purpose of having a course for it. So, for example, like I did the MIT challenge, and this was sort of based on an idea of having some sort of comparison or equivalence to what an MIT student would actually learn. And this was possible because MIT puts their actual course material. So I did the same assignments and same exams that MIT students actually do. Now, surprise, surprise, these are actually a lot harder than a lot of the MOOCs. So if you take the same class as a MOOC, it'll be much, much easier than the one that Stanford or Harvard teaches. And I think this is probably to the detriment of the, the actual classes because you're giving kind of a watered down version that well, yeah, of course, if you make the test a lot easier, more people will pass it. But will people really learn the skills that you wanted them to have? I don't know. To be fair, though, if you look at the the average or the mean grade across universities, it's an A in terms of what professors are giving out. And it's because there, there is a lot of coddling. And you also want to get the students through the university because there's so much money in the system. You got to graduate them to push them through. That's definitely true at a higher level. But I would also keep in mind that when we're talking about grade inflation, particularly in institutions like Harvard and stuff, the students that they're selecting are all students who were getting A plus averages their entire oh, no, academic not, not Harvard, career, you know? Not Harvard nationwide. So even, even you're looking at less than spectacular schools. True. They're giving true. out spectacular grades. Well, it's because not- there's a lot of schools that they just want to make more money, right? They're a business. And if you fail out, you're not going to pay more tuition. <laughs> Should we? Do we need to so, make education nonprofit? Well, a lot of education is nonprofit in the sense that educational institutions are organized as nonprofits and, and they're set up that way. But I think you can't really escape the fact that nonprofit or, or for-profit institutions have their own incentive structures, right? If you're a university administrator, you want to preside over a larger institution. It gives you more prestige, more power. You want to have a more prestigious institution. You want to have a larger student body. So I, I don't know whether you can escape these incentives. It's not about making it for-profit or non-profit. I think, you know, even Harvard or MIT, like they have their own metrics that they're working for. And those are not necessarily perfectly aligned with 
what's in the best interest of students or what's in the best interest of, you know, the people they're trying to serve. They're trying to serve their own interests of their own institution and their own professions and those kinds of ambitions. So I think we got to work within those incentive structures rather than just pretend like we can set it up so that they won't exist. They don't seem to exist as much in Europe, though. I'm, I don't really know why. It's, I, I had a friend, a, a roommate mm-hmm. when I lived in Germany, and he was complaining his master's tuition got raised up to 800 euros a year, and that included his public <laughs> transit. And I was yeah. like, Jesus, are you serious? And yeah. I, it, seem, it seems like mainly the English-speaking countries have failed when it comes to the pricing of universities. I think there's a different model, and I will say that. I think there's a different model. I don't know what the solution is. Canada, for instance, where where I'm from, tends to be somewhere in between. So we have more expensive tuition, like I paid more than 800 euros to go to school per year, but it's nowhere near as expensive as the United States. And so I think part of the issue is that the American model has by and large pursued a kind of elitist model where universities are kind of the structure of higher education is aimed at how do we get the best possible institutions that will benefit the top 1% of people. And I mean, there is a justification for that. If we view that the main goal of universities is to produce Nobel Prize winners, for instance, the United States leads in Nobel Prize winners. It has some of the best universities in the world. You know, if you look at the top rank universities, many of them, most of them are in the United States. Uh, Whereas the European model seems to be a more egalitarian model about how do we expand education for everyone, which I think when we're talking about this problem of ordinary people acquiring education, then yeah, the European model seems to make a lot more sense. So one last question about education before we pivot it. We were talking about selecting for the elite, selecting for the best, selecting for what the colleges incentivize. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the whole Harvard scandal of letting in students with lower qualifications to meet racial, um, oh, affirmative action? Affirmative oh, I thought action. we were talking about the uh, the the scandal of no, um, not not the, the here's parents, the, uh, not that, not that scandal. Not the, Which scandal 60, are we talking? About? Yeah, we got a sixty million dollar yeah. donation for a new stadium. If you can let Johnny in, I think you know what. I think it's really challenging to to address these kinds of issues because. At stake here, you know, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to bump it up a metal layer. I think at stake here is that it's hard to decide as a society what are these institutions for and what do we want for them. I think on the one hand, we're dealing with, you know, if we're talking about a private entity that's deciding, okay, what is going to be best for creating the, you know, the kind of future leaders of America and the world. I kind of feel like they should have a little bit of autonomy over that. And if that means selecting things that don't purely correspond with academic merit, then on the one hand, I I kind of sympathize with that because I feel like if we live in a world where every single institution has to judge people exactly the same way, you get to this status race where everyone is competing on the same narrow set of metrics. And maybe that's not best for the world. Maybe it's best for the world that we have diverse kinds of accomplishments, that there's the kid who's really good at doing research and has sort of okay grades, or there's the kid who's really good at sports or music, or I don't know. Uh, on the other hand, I feel like there's definitely a sense, uh, in, in my mind at least, that uh, Asian students have been kind of discriminated against, and there's probably def- well, definitely some bias against uh, them because I think that they have a bit more of an academically inclined culture, and I think that that results in a lot of otherwise qualified people being passed up from these institutions. And I think that that's really unfortunate. So I don't really know what's going to come of it. But I think the meta question is more interesting to me, which is, what are these institutions for? And what should we be expecting as a society for them to try to be promoting and creating? And I think we haven't really gotten clear on that, like as we were talking about with the European versus American models of education. I mean, they clearly depend on what is the thing we're trying to produce with education. And I think there's a lot of differing opinions on that, which is part of the reason I suggest having more options in the first place rather than having it be, you know, it's this or nothing, which I think is part of the thing that people are fighting about. What should we be trying to produce as we move towards a more automated world? Well, I think that what we should be trying to produce is more of everything. And so again, as I said about the having more options, I think that we need to live in a society where there are institutions that will cultivate the very best, that they're going to be the people who are smarter than you or I, that are going to be, you know, producing Nobel Prize winning work, creating life-saving new technologies, becoming the future politicians and world leaders. 
But then we also need to have a system so that, you know, people who are normal can acquire skills to go work jobs. I think the fact that universities have been shouldering all these different goals simultaneously and not really achieving them very well is means that it's ripe for new innovations, new types of institutions, and even new types of strategies like ultra learning to come into play so that people can approach things in different ways. And so I'm kind of an advocate for pluralism. I'm an advocate for not how do we make one system the best possible system, but how do we have more systems so that, you know what, I'm not going to go to Harvard, I'm going to go do X, or I'm not going to go to state university and spend $40,000 a year to get a mediocre education. I'm going to do something different, and it's going to be much more beneficial to me. I think that's the thing that we need to be solving right now. And I think that, you know, there are lots of new promising ideas out there for new institutions, but I think there's a lot even right now that we can be doing as individuals to acquire those skills. Especially with the micro career movement where you go from having one career and one employer for 40 years to having something like seven to 13 on average for the oh, absolutely the average millennial. So you've had you've lived a bit of an unconventional life. I think that makes <laughs> yeah. both of us in terms of the the traveling. Yeah. What what got you into the the nomad movement? What got you into exploring the world? What's the story? So I wouldn't consider myself a nomad. I've mostly lived uh, in, you know, I, I have a house here with possessions and stuff. So I, I am friends with genuine nomads. And I know that kind of living out of a suitcase lifestyle. But I think I really like travel and I really like the ability to not just go to places but live there for a little while. And so I've been lucky enough that I've had a few chances to do that. And I've had a few chances also to learn the language in the place that I've stayed in. And I think that the reason that's so valuable is that it's very easy to get this narrow perspective on what the world is like from your little bubble that you live in. And you don't even realize it's a bubble, but you are definitely in a bubble. All of us are. I am. You are. Everyone listening to this right now are in our own collective bubbles of this is how the world works and this is how it is. And these are who the good people are. These are who the bad people are. This is this is the things that are important. And these are the things that don't matter. And I think living in other places gives you a chance to experience a different kind of bubble. And I think that that's very important because you often have this sense that all the little things that matter to you in this local context are really the world's problems. But then you go somewhere else and you find out actually no one cares about that. They're talking about something completely different here. And we have that on a local level and we have it on a filter bubble in terms of what you're seeing online, oh, social media news. How do we deal with that? Because it's becoming increasingly yeah. political and polarized. Well, I think, again, part of that is you want to cultivate diverse contacts with people. You want to cultivate diverse types of friendships. I know a lot of people that like all of their friends are all the same. You know, they all do the same thing. They all support the same political parties. They all have the same beliefs and attitudes about things. And my my sort of approach to socializing is that I like to collect people who are sort of unique, like one of a kind, like this person is not like anyone else. And I think that that it's not even just my point of contact with that person, but that that person overlaps into a world that I'm not a part of at all. And so I get that kind of feedback of, oh, this is what these sort of people think about this, or this is what these people are thinking about that. And I think that's not only true of like an international level, but even in just where you are locally, like who are the people you know, and that kind of thing. See, but you have to have the meta understanding of yourself to understand that you should do that. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. And it seems like we're not wired to have that meta understanding or most people don't pursue that. So what what are some systems that we could possibly put in place so that it became not the not the effort, but the the norm, the default where people had some of these? Oh, well, you know, I think this is one of the things that I think I feel really strongly about is that people people by and large, uh, you know, if you tell them, OK, you really should be doing this, that doesn't work. You know, um, so we could talk about, well, even talk about a simpler thing that there's an obesity crisis going on in North America, well, and in the world. And it's easy to look at that and say, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't eat so much junk food or eat out so much and you should eat healthy and like, you know, we should know that. But at the same time, I don't think that any of that nutritional advice, any of the things that we've been spouting off kind of preaching has had any effect at all on this crisis. And I think the reason why is just that we have hardwired instincts about what we want to do for eating, and those are going to override it. However, I'm more optimistic about as an individual, what choices you can make for yourself. And so I think when we're talking about how can we change the world, I think the right way to think is how can I change my own behavior? And how can I change how I think about these things? And so this is sort of a big part of my philosophy when I'm, I'm focusing on, you know, we're talking about education, and we're talking about these big system wide level events. 
And my feeling is that the right way to think about this is how do I approach my own personal education? How do I approach my own way of getting informed? And when we're talking about your social life and you're getting outside the bubbles, how do I do that for myself? Because if you can't solve the problem for yourself, it's not possible at all to solve it for anyone else. And so I think that focusing on that individual point of view is just, that's that's sort of a large part of my own message, because I think everyone wants to jump to how can we change all these other people who are doing it wrong and not point the sort of the lens inward and say, okay, how can I align myself to these things that I claim that I believe in? Oh, yeah, I would definitely agree. I'm definitely guilty of this. We're all definitely guilty of this. It's also, Mm -hmm. it also seems so doable, though. Like, what if we just increase the taxes on sugar, on soda? We just put the little incentives in because it feels like we need some of those incentive shifts, at least with uh, at least with the advertising models that we have today, because right well, now, sure, you know. you know, but I think that like, well, if we're talking about, um, you know, obesity and overeating, I think that the challenge is that the thing that we're trying to overcome is not some, you know, not an easy fix where, okay, well, we if we just don't do this, then it'll all be fine. I think the problem is that you know, we are hardwired to want to eat a lot of food when it's available. And it's always available now. And so we do it. And it's not only available, it's convenient, we don't have to cook it and spend an hour in the kitchen. And to make a nice meal, we can just go out and eat something quickly or get DoorDash or or what have you. And, and I think the same is true with cultivating friendships with people that are different from us. Our hardwiring thing is to form communities to form tribes to create consensus opinions to create consensus views of what is actually going on out there. And we're very sort of resistant at a base level to have people that, you know, say things that we wildly disagree with can persist in our social circles. And so I think that it's difficult to do that. And I think that, you know, how do you engineer that at a societal level? I don't know how you do that. But I think that if you can focus on how do you do it at a personal level, that would be that would be the place to start, definitely. Because if you have a diverse social circle, if you are able to do that, I think then you're now in a position where you can start speaking about, okay, other people might want to do this. If, if you can explain the benefits, how do they do that? You know, that's a little wisdom nugget right there that I think we should take a take a second to focus on. Now, productivity and purpose. Mm-hmm. How do you look at and define productivity, purpose, happiness? I know you write a yeah. lot about these topics and about mm-hmm. helping people find them. So it's it's really interesting because there's a kind of a way I think productivity is often um, seen. Even just the word, when you say productivity and you feel it, there's a kind of a mental image that gets conjured of just being really busy, you know, like you're waking up at 6am and you're just doing lots of stuff and all the to-do list items are getting checked off and you're, you're not wasting any time. You're not watching television. You're not doing anything that's, that's not, you know, purposeful and useful. And I think that there's some value in this kind of sense of productivity, but I don't think it's the most important one. The way I feel productivity is productivity is about how do you organize your life in such a way that you are doing more of the things that you actually value. And I think this leads to a question of, well, what are the things you actually value? What are the things that you genuinely want to have more of in your life? And I think for most of us, if we really thought about it, what we don't want for our life is just for it to be more and more work, you know? What we want it to be is to not only, you know, get our work done, but we want to get it done in a way that's less stressful. We want to actually make creative accomplishments. We want to feel like we're progressing in our careers. But then at the same time, we want to also have time to watch that Netflix show. We want to be able to watch that, you know, new Avengers movie and talk about it with our friends. We want to be able to sleep in on a weekend. And so for me, I think that that's what productivity is really about, is about cultivating that, cultivating the ability to have those moments and have that time off and have that ability to pursue the other things that you really care about. And I think when you tune yourself to that view of productivity, then it I don't think it feels as burdensome. It doesn't feel as much as like, oh, I really should be more productive. Because that feeling that you have of I should really be more productive is more about saying, I should really stop doing all these other things I like so that I can do more work. Whereas what it should really be about is how do I do my work in a way that I do have space for the other things that I actually care about? I would totally agree. I think it's it's analogous to why GDP is such a bad metaphor, uh, such a bad symbol to build towards because you can always make it bigger by working harder and throwing out more stuff. But yeah. that's not necessarily what you want. If you can have the GDP stay the same and the hours of work go down, then that's pretty solid productivity too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or having vacations or, or even just doing more meaningful work. You know, I think a lot of us, when we think about what we do on a day-to-day basis, the reason the reason that we don't want to spend our, all our time working is because we don't derive a lot of meaning from a lot of the activities we do. 
And so even if we could just make the work we do feel more personally meaningful, mean something that, you know what, I'm really glad that I'm doing this every day, that itself is a win. And that's, so that's a different notion of productivity than just doing more tasks, executing more stuff. It's also about how do you dial into doing things that really matter to you and, and you think will really make an impact and things you're going to be proud of, you know, 10, 20 years from now and not just stuff that's going to check off to-do list for someone else. How do you do that and how do you avoid getting caught in the the mindset or the rabbit hole of examining this and then going deeper and then going deeper? Because it is a rabbit hole mm. in the meta-ness of the further down you go, the more fractal it becomes. Well, so, and this this kind of ties into the, the thesis of my book and, and one of the big ideas that I have, uh, and this is an idea that I learned first from Cal Newport in his great book, uh, So Good They Can't Ignore You, but basically the idea is that meaningful careers come from being good at things, from having rare and valuable skills that not only earn rewards on the marketplace so you can have a high paying prestigious job, but also so that you have control over what you're doing. Because if you are a commodity, if you do the same thing that every other person off the street can do, then no, you don't have any control and you do what other people tell you. Whereas if you have a lot of leverage because you're one of the rare individuals that can do a certain thing or do it at the level that you can do it, then yes, you actually get to call a lot of the shots. And this is basic economics and it often gets obfuscated by these ideas about, you know, following your passion or you need to just take risks and do things like that. You know, it's, it's more about overcoming mediocrity, not about overcoming your fears. It's more about how do you become really good at something. And so this ties into this idea of ultra learning that I think if you orient your career towards how do I acquire skills rather than how do I just accomplish tasks, how do I get really good at something that I can't do as good as I can right now? How do I become a top performer? Then that's a different conversation you're having. And I think even the idea of acquiring skills about getting good at things automatically guides you towards meaning because now you're not like just looking at, okay, these are the tasks I have to do today. How do I check them off? But how do I become better at this than I was before? Either I can do it more efficiently, I can deliver greater results for my clients, for my employer, or maybe I can do something that no one's ever thought of before that, you know, everyone's doing the system in this way. And I found a, you know, an escape hatch or something else that I can work on. And so I think that the attitude of learning and really, you know, embedding that in how you think about your work is so important. Absolutely. What is the one technology or trend you would say you're most excited about today and why? Oh, I think the trend that I'm most excited about, which is not, uh, not really a technology trend, because I am interested in technology, but I think that technology tends to be a lot of hype. So the things that they're probably going to be important trends, but maybe not quite as big as all the you know, blaring headlines are making about, let's say, artificial intelligence or self-driving cars or whatnot. But I think one of the biggest trends that has been happening for a while, and I think is going to continue to happen, and I think it's going to be a very positive force for the world, is a lot of middle-income countries suddenly becoming developed countries. And this is often framed as a negative for people in North America because we have a zero-sum mindset. We have this idea, someone else is getting better so we're losing influence. And maybe that's true on a geopolitical front that, you know, people who are politicians or DC think tanks are worried about China becoming bigger or India becoming bigger. But from a commercial perspective or from a perspective of someone who produces and makes things, the fact that there are many, many more people in the world who can buy your products is a huge thing. That's a huge win for whatever you're doing in the world. And the fact that there's a lot of countries that are becoming richer and having more income and having more access to the internet and things like that is also a good thing. And so I really think this is a very positive trend because the bigger the pie is, the more that, you know, there are people who are participating in things, that's not only going to elevate the market size so that you can reach more people with the work that you're doing, but it's also going to increase the caliber because now things that were maybe not viable when it was only selling to Americans can now be viable if being sold to the entire world. So I think we're going to see a lot of innovation being driven from that, that being driven from the fact that, you know, if you expand the market 10 times, suddenly a lot more companies that didn't exist before can suddenly pop into existence. And sometimes it takes two different Einsteins from two different places to create something truly magical. It's it's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible where where the world is headed. Growing up, and probably still today, my favorite Christmas movie of all time, Home Alone. I loved seeing the family leave for the holidays and the kid go through the chaos, having the home get robbed, the whole nine yards. It was hilarious. Do you know you're five times less likely to have your home robbed than you are to have damage from water leakage? That's why I'm excited to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Flow, the company that's giving you peace of mind for the holidays and every day. Flow can detect up to a drop a minute. You know that little dude. 
dude, dude, which drives you nuts. And for a limited time, you can save $150 off the installation of a Flow device by going to disruptors.fm slash flow, that's F-L-O, and using discount code disrupt15. Save money, save water, save your home. It's the number one way to save money on your water bill, expensive home insurance, and damage claims and have that peace of mind knowing that that awesome new carpet you got it isn't going to get ruined by complete soakage we've all been there something goes wrong we lived in new york and had a sump pump things happen so for a limited time 150 dollars off your installation disruptors.fm slash flow that's f-l-o and use coupon code disrupt 15 all caps at checkout to save 150 bucks and now let's get on with the program we brought up biotech a little bit. Yeah. You're kind of fashioning your career like a little bit into a, a Tim Ferriss type mold. Where where, <laughs> where do you see yourself yeah. headed? Uh, I would like to continue writing. Honestly, writing was something that was even a little bit of a side choice for me in the beginning that I was sort of, you know, I wanted to have an online business and writing was kind of a way of doing that. So it was picked sort of, you know, not like I'm going to be some writer. Whereas I really like writing and I think writing is very powerful, um, not only for persuading people, but also for really, I think it's one of the more powerful tools for impacting people with ideas. But I think the converse of that is that there's a lot of people doing a lot of writing and not a lot of kind of the deep thinking to create a really good writing. And so I don't claim to be, you know, the deepest of thinkers. There's a lot of people who think a lot. Their ratio of thinking to writing is a lot better than mine. But I think one of the things that I'm also really striving for, and this kind of goes into the ideas of my book, is to really become a lot more knowledgeable about a lot of topics that I do write about. Because I think even now, I've spent a lot of time trying to keep up to date and learn as many things. And I'm still aware of how many gaps there are in my own knowledge that prevents me from really synthesizing ideas that, you know, should be obvious or things that I should, you know, this is really the right take or the right point to make about this, but I can't make it because I don't have enough of the knowledge to work on it. So writing would be an important factor, but I would strive if possible to be the kind of writer who I'm spending a lot more of my time reading and thinking and and really learning fields that are not, you know, immediately I'm going to write an article or a book about this, but are going to be helpful because they're going to form the background substrate for all the other ideas. That I'm- yeah, it's tough. You've got to have that balance because if it is if it is pure thinker, it's also kind of per- worthless for the society because no one finds out. And and I think that there's also a lack of feedback, a lack of connection to the real world. So I think that the more thinking you do, the more you can go off in a tangent that you know it's personally interesting, but it, it detaches from reality. And so I think you need to have that concrete not only a dialogue with other people, I do think that the best thinking we do is in dialogue with people, not just privately on your own. But also I think with some kind of, you know, if it could be said, some kind of market test, some kind of, you know, you're producing something that other people have kind of a vote on of like, whether or not they think this is useful or helpful or interesting or true. And I think that that's the kind of work that I want to do. So it's not merely a thinking as a purely, you know, ivory tower off from the world kind of exercise, but also, you know, like you're making things, you're doing little experiments. And so I think my career kind of up to this point has been doing a lot of those kind of projects that, you know, doing a big public project like the MIT challenge in a way that not only is for my own betterment, but also in a way that I can refine my own thoughts on education and learning and this kind of stuff, because I'm doing it in a way that creates dialogue and creates, you know, people saying, well, I think this about this or think that about that. I think that's a lot better than if I just do these things and, you know, keep it completely private. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, you got a BS meter. It, uh, isolation breeds insanity. You got to have you got to have Definitely. something happening. So what mm-hmm. are, where are you at in terms of you seem to be you seem to be big on hacking, learning, hacking mental states. What about in terms of biohacking, hacking the body? So I'm actually, so weirdly enough, I'm somewhat pessimistic about, well, I don't want to say biohacking as an entire discipline, because obviously I, I do believe that the, you know, our bodies and our minds are fundamentally biological. So, you know, at a certain sense, that's sort of a tacit admission that biologically hacking things should be able to improve performance. And I think in the long term picture, I think we don't, We don't even really fully appreciate how profound that kind of change can be. Like one of the things that just amazes me as a fact about our biology is that a lot of, you know, evolutionary uh, biologists believe that the human brain is mostly constrained by the size of head that can be pushed through a woman's birth canal. If it becomes larger, then the hips have to get too large so that you can't have upright walking. 
And so our heads are kind of probably stopped growing at a certain point just because they couldn't get physically larger. Now, obviously, that's a kind of weird physical constraint. So if there was some technology that could just make the brain in its current design, you know, three or four times as complex, like that would be insane. It's, it's hard to imagine what kind of impacts it would have on society if, you know, you could just take neurons that fire at like, you know, 100 times per second and make them fire 100,000 times per second. Like, you know, if you get these kinds of constraints uh, lifted through some way, I think that there's profound impacts that could happen at the human level. But then again, when I look at how most biohacking is discussed today, I'm not really that optimistic about what's kind of currently out there. I know a lot of people are are very into nootropics or, or sort of taking kind of drugs that are supposed to enhance thinking. And I was actually even having a conversation with a guy recently through email where I was saying kind of articulating my view that I don't think my, my sort of prior belief is that that probably won't work very well that it's probably not very easy to just make sustainably large improvements to cognition by just adding a drug to the system because of just how the brain sort of should work architecturally. It would be very unusual if just turning one dial of one single kind of, you know, chemical reaction in the brain suddenly made us 10 times smarter. You know, that would be weird that the dial isn't already set there, you know, by by default, because presumably being a lot better at thinking is is useful for, for human beings. So I'm not quite sure what the future holds there, but I, I think sort of my, my view right now is that my current state of technology is pretty skeptical, but my long-term vision is that we haven't even really approached what's what's possible there. I would agree. I would say some of those things in terms of taking the taking the pill, so to speak, let's say you could turn on autistic superpowers, we'll call it, for a couple of hours and then turn sure. them off. There's a reason why evolutionarily autism wasn't super helpful. But also you do see from time to time people that have their brains wired differently accomplishing things that mere mortals could never even conceive of. So I could I could well, see that yeah. argument. I could see I could see an argument for pushing um pushing it into kind of a more consistently pushing your mind into a a kind of global state that is within the ranges of normal cognition but that is difficult to sustain or difficult to enter into normally. But I also feel like, you know, I I think that again some of that seems to me to be a little bit overblown. Like one of the things uh, I hear a lot from students is taking things like Adderall or taking other kinds of stimulants in order to study better, which, you know, I've never done that well other than caffeine. But even even when I was doing the MIT challenge, I wasn't drinking a lot of coffee. But I think that to me, that strikes me as kind of trying to hack the nervous system because the nervous system is designed to say this isn't very important. So don't focus on it and to change it so that the salience of it gets revved right up. And maybe that's valuable for grinding through something that's not very important. But I kind of feel like that's a little bit of an artificial situation so you can do well on school tests that when things are really important to you, genuinely important to you, you do have the ability to focus. And so it's a little bit more like I have no natural interest or motivation to learn this boring subject. So here's how I can hack my brain chemistry to temporarily increase my focus. But if you were building, you know, if you were building some startup that's going to build some life-saving technology, I... I, I tend to think that focus would be easier in these kinds of domains or thinking through those ideas are more useful. So to create actual human achievement, human accomplishment, I'm a somewhat doubtful that that's going to be able to fix those situations. Although maybe drugs and things like that can help with some of these corner cases. I don't know. I'm, a, I'm definitely on the skeptic end of things like that. If you've got to duct tape your body together for it to perform, eventually the duct tape's going to tear. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a little bit like sometimes you sprain your ankle and you need a cast, but I wouldn't say that putting a cast on most people is necessarily the way that we can improve our overall running speed. You know, like it's, it's probably a little bit more like that. That's my analogy. At least. And if you keep running on the cast with a broken ankle, you're going to be in a bad place. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually you need the cast at all and even just to, to function, right? Mm -hmm. What should I have asked you about that I didn't? I don't know. This has been a fun conversation. We've talked about a lot of things that I haven't normally been asked. So this is uh, this has been really enjoyable for me, at least. That That's always our goal, to be cr yeah, yeah. creative, push people beyond the boundaries, and then hopefully listeners also get a little uh, a little exploration as well. Mm -hmm. I got yeah. one last question for you, Scott, before sure. you tell people where to find you and all the good wrap-up stuff. And that is, if you had one thing to leave people with today, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything, what would it be and why? Well, I think, I know we didn't really talk so so much about all the details in my book but i would say that my main call to action is kind of the idea that i put forth in this book which is that 
orienting your life around learning, if you orient your life around acquiring hard skills, not just learning from books, not just like acquiring a lot of book knowledge, but really becoming better at things, new skills, things that you don't know how to do right now. If you set that up as one of the core central missions in your life, you will achieve great results, not only in your professional life, but in your personal life. And so much of my life has been oriented around that goal. And not only, you know, having that goal, but knowing how to do it, which I talk about a lot in my book. But I think that if more people would view success in their life as being a fundamentally a learning project, they would have a lot better results than if they view it just as a matter of character or willpower, disciplined or, or grind or hustle or all the other metaphors that are out there right now. That's your new, that's your next book, Ultra Living, learning to become the <laughs> Renaissance man or woman of the 21st mm. century, right? <laughs> we could all use some Thanks. of that diversity and, uh, I think I think it's super important. That's part of the reason for this podcast is I get to talk with the smartest folks in the world focused on almost everything and share that with the world. And I think I think getting stuff from different areas of the world and different areas of technology and and thought can be super thought provoking as long as it's not too much that it's distracting. Yeah. And, and I think that we want not just more breadth, but more depth and also the willingness to be like, you know, this might actually require a month or two months to kind of really dig into to understand, but I'm going to invest that. Because I think for a lot of us, we have an intellectual breadth that kind of covers whatever is interesting, but is very like, you know, it's only a few centimeters deep, it doesn't actually explore subjects, people can talk about them. And you, you can follow these high level chattering between people who either know what they're talking about, or, or quite often they don't. But there's very little, you know, effort to be like, I'm actually going to understand how genetics works so that when people talk about it, I'll know what they're talking about. I think that's the kind of learning that I'd like to advocate for and that I think is relatively rare in the world. Yeah, it's the Netflix level versus the, the deep dive. Yeah. Where can people find you, learn more, check out the book? So you can find my website at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And I have over a thousand articles talking about many of these topics. And you can also find links to my book there. My book is Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career. And it really is about how do you do these things that we're talking about? How do you actually acquire hard skills and do this in a way that, you know, fits into your life? And um, I would suggest also checking out, uh, I have my own podcast where I talk about, I narrate a lot of the articles that I've read. So if you're more of a listener than a reader, then definitely check that out or check out the audiobook version of my book, which is on Audible. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Scott. This has been a lot of fun. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And if you're listening to this and run an awesome business and you want to reach the most interesting folks in the world, then feel free to reach out. Matt at disruptors.fm. We're looking for a couple of select advertisers if we can get behind the products and support them. And until next time, go make something happen. Think big, keep learning and keep doing. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.